when you prepare for worship. And there's a lot that goes into it. You think about things all week long. And, and then frequently over the last, you know, 50 years that I kind of have been involved in, de- involved as a serious participant, then you, then you arrive and, and sometimes things go just like you planned. And then other times you have a sense that God is just doing something different. And I, I kind of have that sense now, and maybe if I put it to words, it would be just a consciousness of our need, a consciousness of our need. One of our brothers, I don't want to name names because I don't want to embarrass him, but one of our brothers has been taken away in an ambulance this morning. We'll think he'll be okay, but he needs care, so be in prayer. But one of our brothers that just went away in an ambulance. And, and uh, let's stop and pray right now, and, and let's take this time to just take whatever burden you have right now, whatever's making your heart heavy or distracting you and you're thinking about it or you feel bad or guilty about whatever that is, you know, his shoulders are broad, amen? His shoulders are broad. He has, he's omnipotent and he is deeply caring and we can take our burdens to him. So right now, let's just pray. Lord, I pray for our brothers being taken to the hospital for some observation. Help him, I pray. Help his family. We love him and care about him and he tried to come to church today. And uh, as he has for many years. And so have we. And we don't come because we're wonderful or because we're good people or because we want to impress people. We come because we need you. We come because we want to love, serve you and love you. And we want to tell you thank you. And we come because we need you. We especially come because we need you. And now as we look into your word, we thank you for it. Sometimes it convicts us. Sometimes it comforts us. Sometimes it enlightens us. It's just so wonderful. And even this beautiful text that we've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks has been such a beautiful, such an interesting, full text. Use it, I pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit right now to to help your people and to draw anyone far from you to you. Work among us, I pray, now in Jesus' name, amen. So Pastor Jordan took us to Acts 20 last week in a really rich passage, and the reason that he did that is because we kind of agreed about that, and the reason is because it's a little echo of the Ephesians story.
And the, and the narrative follows Peter. But then the, 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 the story turns, and the story Luke is writing to give the details of the early Jesus movement, and he begins now to tell the story of a man whose name was Paul. And I think I'm right in saying there are four times now in, the, in Acts that it keeps going back and telling the story of the conversion of Saul or of Paul. And Paul is a, the perfect Jewish evangelist, right? Has the Jewish background, the Jewish training, the Jewish pedigree, and God sends him to the, of course, the Gentiles, because that's how he works. And there was a course, brilliant, it was brilliant on God's part to do that because the Gentiles were going to be coming to faith and that's going to get people killed. The Gentiles are coming to faith. Now, first of all, people that are following Judaism have a big change and now Judaism morphs into Christianity. And this is a big change that's actually going to get some people killed. And on top of that, included in the church, included in Christianity, if you will, are all kinds of Greek people. Or I, maybe I can say it this way, uncircumcised Greek people. That's how the Bible, that's how the Bible, I didn't make that up, that's in the Bible. Uh, pagans, those people. It's like, are you kidding? We're gonna empty the bar and put those people in the church? That's kind of the idea. People are gonna get killed over this. In, in, in a very real sense, the Jews plotted to kill Jesus over that, and the Romans participated, and the Romans publicly crucified Jesus. And the reason that Paul is going around the world talking about it is because God raised Jesus from the dead, and he met Paul on the road to Damascus. Saul is persecuting the church, and if you look at the story where the story of Paul is told, the conversion of Saul is told in the book of Acts over and over again, Every time it's told, it kind of gets worse. You get more detail about what a bad hombre this guy, Paul, was. He was persecuting Christians, beating Christians. He was responsible for Christians' death. A little bit later, after the passage we're going to study in Acts 20 today, he even says, you know, I was there holding the coats when they were stoning this beautiful young man, Stephen, who's crying out to God as a vision of God, and he's crying out for the forgiveness of those that are killing him, and Paul is participating in that, and he grieves over this all of his life, and always points to the grace of God to the cross. So in Acts 20, the story is he's gone to Troas, he's preached a long message, and he raised Eutychus, the young man from the dead, that's rejoicing. He goes a couple of other places. At one point, Paul sends the ship ahead, and he walks. It's really interesting. What was he doing? Why was he doing that? Did he want time alone? We do know that he had something on his mind, and it was that he was going to Jerusalem. And we do know that he knew that in Jerusalem, he was going to suffer. And everywhere he went, it's like people said, the Holy Spirit told me that you probably shouldn't go because the Holy Spirit told me if you go, you're going to suffer. At one point, it's after the text we're going to talk about today. At one point, a guy named Agabus even uses kind of a object lesson. Like, they're going to bind you. But Paul, he believes the Spirit has told them he's going to suffer, but he doesn't believe, he believes in their interpretation, but not their application. He believes what they said, that the Spirit told him he's going to suffer, but the application, therefore you shouldn't go, he doesn't believe that. He believes, God just telling me I'm going to suffer so I know what I'm getting myself into. 
And then the rest of Acts is the story of Paul and the various trials and the trips that he takes on the Roman dime and even leading up to what implies his death, which is in extra-biblical literature. But that's a, that's a series of other amazing stories, even a shipwreck tucked in there and a snake, all kinds of neat stuff tucked in there in the book of Acts. You probably should read that. But today we are looking at Acts 20 because it's unique. Acts 20 is the only sermon in Acts that's directed to Christians. It's the first and only sermon in Acts that's directed to Christians. And, the, and this is uh, to Christians who are leaders. As a matter of fact, it may be the richest text of its kind in the Bible that actually kind of weaves into narrative what it should look like to be an elder. And so if you are an elder today, and I love you guys, we just gathered in my study to pray, this will be special for you, but it will be also for everyone, and here's why. The Bible says Jesus is the example for the elders, and the elders are the example to the church. And it's like I told my boy one day, you know, I don't, I don't care if you're a pastor, the preaching, teaching, full-time vocational pastor, but I want you to aspire to be an elder in the sense that you are qualified in, in the sense of your character and what you believe and what you do, that you're, that you're serious and active and involved in the mission of the church. And I'd say the same thing to you. As I've thought about this this week, if you're an elder, this will be directly to you, of course. But if you're not an elder, this is indirectly very much to you, and there's an application for each of you, and I'll make that really clear. So what I want to do today is I want to go through this text. I want to read it, and then I want to walk through it a little bit. Then I want to make application to the saints. And, um, and so understand that the setting, I'm trying to say here, is that the setting of this talk to the Ephesian elders is supercharged. Here's a guy that's saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. This is probably the last time I'll ever see you. And he'd been with them for years, so they loved him, and he loved them. And we'll see a clear demonstration of that in the text. Let's just read from 17, even though Pastor Jordan already dealt with this first part. We'll just read it so we get the flow of the story. Now from Miletus, I'm in Acts 20:17. Now from Miletus... He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Shiver, right? Now I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit, test, it te Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink for the second time, he says. Now, verse 20 and verse 27, he says, I did not shrink 
from declaring you. This time he says, the whole counsel of God. Before he said, anything that's profitable. The pastor that's faithful proclaims everything that's needed for the people. He doesn't skirt any issues that are needed. And he proclaims the whole gospel, the whole counsel of God. The elder that's faithful teacher doesn't skirt around any issues. And he, he doesn't cherry pick the Bible, but he teaches all of the things that are true. That's what he said. And, the, and he's delivered from blood guilt by doing so. Verse 28 is the new part of the text. Pastor Jordan and I overlap that one verse. We're both, we're both going to play tug of war with that one. So verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves. I'm sorry, let me interrupt myself. So what you had right there was basically Paul saying, you saw what my life was like when I lived among you. Essentially, he just said, I was an example of what I taught. And I, I humbled myself and I was, my life was being threatened by the Jews, but, but the church is more important than my life. You are more important than my life. It's amazing that Paul said that. I don't count my life, dear. So, so that chunk that I just read to you could be under the, under the uh, heading, this is, um, I'm sorry, on the, on the slides, let's back up to the splash screen that has the pretty church on it and just leave it set there. And d- d- that's it. Oh, it's a moving. Okay, leave that there because, I'm sorry, didn't make this clear to you. What I'm doing right now is I'm walking through the text and just kind of explaining it. A little bit later, I'm going to give you four points of application, and we have slides. We have special slides for that. Okay, so that's what's up. So, so I'm confusing folks because I didn't tell them ahead. Sorry, please forgive me for not communicating well. So what I'm doing right now is we're just going over this text, and there's three parts of it. The first part is Paul's an example. The second part is going to be Paul charges the church. So last week, Pastor Jordan was talking about you all should serve like Paul. That's what, he, that's what Pastor Jordan said last week. Look how he served. We should all serve like that. Paul's an example. And that's what that chunk That's the big idea of that chunk. The next part of the passage is this part where he looks at the elders and he says, now I charge you, take care of yourselves and all the flock and look out, wolves are coming in and people are rising up among you and he's going to charge the church. The nature of what he's going to say now is he's giving a charge to the church through the elders. He's serious. It's like this guy that's probably going to die and he's going, let me just say, give you a few last words here before I go. You're the key church in the area. You send church planters to other churches, and this is what he does. And there you have Paul's charge to the Ephesian elders. He says, first, tend to your own spiritual life. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You remember, we studied this a little bit last week, but, but here's something that's interesting. Who is Paul talking to? They are elders, Okay, now he says you are overseers, and the word there is the bishop word. The bishop word, the episcopos. He's saying you're elders, you're bishops. That's the Bible word. In some church traditions, you have elders at the local church, and then you have bishops that are over them. That's an extra biblical idea. If you just look at the Bible, what you have is you're going to see this is addressed to elders who are also called bishops and who are over and over in this passage called what? Pastors or shepherds. So a pastor is an elder is a bishop, and a bishop is a pastor is an elder. They're all one office. We're going to see in a minute, some of them are, are you might, we might call them lay elders. They may not take pay for what they do, and others live of the gospel. They take pay for what they do. The scriptures make that distinction there in 1 Timothy in chapter 5, verse 17 and 18 in 1 Corinthians. It says that. We'll see it in a minute if we get the time. 
But the idea is that these are these are elders are they're, so they're so they're elders and they're pastors that that feed the flock and lead the flock and you're going to see protect the flock. That's what pastors do, and they're overseers. So they they kind of like oversee everything. They're bishops. They over they have an oversight, and that's what it's going to say right there. So the Spirit has made them overseers. This is in verse 28 to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. And that's an interesting statement of the deity of Christ, isn't it? Does it say the name of Jesus there? It does not. It says God and his blood. Jesus is God. So now, by the way, just like when, if, if, if ferocious wolves are coming in among the flock, one of the ways you can tell a ferocious wolf is a false teacher is going to say Jesus is less than the Bible says he is. If like the Mormons, for instance, not that we're, we, we're hateful of these people, but they deny the unique deity of Christ. Therefore, they are wolves in this sense. That's a false religion. It's a damning false religion. Liberal Christianity that denies the deity of Christ is, is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, the the uh, So the Mormon church would be an example of that. It wouldn't be the only example. Unitarians would be an example of that. Uh, uh, So so you would also have um, uh, the uh, Jehovah's Witness who come to your door, and they they will deny that. They'll do it in a slippery way, so you can't tell right away, but they will deny the unique deity of Jesus. I'm just saying here, the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. He shed his blood. In this text, it says God purchased the church with his blood. God, Jesus is God. So it's just a little theological piece that you should know. Verse 29 says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, in my study, I prayed that God would help me see the emotional context of this and not just read over it. I don't have a lot of experience with sheep or fierce wolves, but I do have an internet connection. And so, I looked it up, and what I saw is not something you would want to watch on an empty stomach. Beautiful little sheep, lambs, and then the wolves come in at night, and I won't give you the graphic details, but at first they they might grab them by the tail and pull them, and they'll bleed out, and then pretty soon, though, that wolf will have the sheep by the neck and will literally drain the life out of that sheep and then will kill multiple sheep. And when I was watching that a bit, I thought about putting a, a hard screen like that. I would probably get in trouble for that. So I won't do that. So I'll just describe a little bit. But here's what I got to thinking about when I was watching that. I was thinking about Gunnison. You don't know Gunnison. Gunnison is a little waif of a kid. He's a little thin little kid. He's uh, skinny and cute. And he's my grandson. And the devil hates him. And he wants to crush the life out of him, the spiritual life out of him. And so the little children that are beneath us right now, that are being taught and ministered to, Satan despises them. And what he's going to do is he's going to send people that are false teachers to distract them, to deceive them, to confuse them, and to kill them spiritually, which is actually worse than physically. But God has a plan, and his plan is called elders. 
They're men who love God, but they're shepherds who also protect the flock, and they're serious. In order to be an elder, you should be very tender, and you should be very loving, and you should be just a little bit dangerous. This is what the Bible says. Paul's like, I'm going away, and wolves are coming in, and some of them are going to be from outside. Shockingly, he says, hard to say, some of them are going to come in from among you. Don't be surprised if you have error that comes from outside the church. Don't be surprised if you have error that comes from within the church. It's shocking, isn't it? This is what the Bible says. And who stands between the wolves and the sheep? Elders. Shepherds. Jesus was the chief shepherd. He was the great shepherd. He was the door. In the sheepfold, he lay across the door. And the, and the wolf could not come in because the door was there. He's the great shepherd, that, and he has commissioned under shepherds, and they should watch over the flock. And so those elders teach others, and the others that are men and that are women, they teach in the church, and they teach the children, and they teach the children who God is, and they teach the children what the Bible says, and they're serious because it's a life and death thing. Doctrine is, is serious, it's important. Paul's last words to the elders are like, you're shepherds, you're overseers, you're bishops of, of souls, and you're elders, and you have to watch over the flock because fierce wolves are coming in to destroy the flock. And he gives this warning. And then he, he goes on there and he says, and after my departure, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. From among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. This is happening right now all over the internet, people twisting the scriptures called progressive Christianity and other, it goes by other names, taking the scriptures, twisting them, dangerous. Therefore, be alert. This is verse 31. Remembering for three years you saw me do this, I, he says, I didn't cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. So Paul was a passionate teacher and he's at it day and night for years teaching them. And now I command you, to God, I'm sorry, I commend you or I tr entrust you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. So Paul says, I'm going away, but I'm, I'm committing you to God. I'm commending you to God. I'm entrusting you to God. And he is able. And his word, the word of his grace, and it is able. What's, what is it able to do to bu build you up? and to give you an inheritance among those that are sanctified. That's what I want for Gunnison. I'm just picking on Gunnison today. He was over at the house yesterday. He's a little waif, little tiny little bird-like kid. I'd hate to hear him crying out in pain. I hate to think that he wouldn't be in heaven with me someday. What we do here is so serious, isn't it? Paul, he said, and I know you have Gunnison's in your life too. Paul, he said to the elders, verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who are with me. He, Paul, Paul's going to say, and you know I wasn't a hireling. In the sheep language, a hireling is a person that, you know, gets a little something and he doesn't really care about the flock. You ever go to a place of business and you could tell they got hirelings there that really didn't care if you turn a, turn a profit? They're like, they're closing 15 minutes early. They don't care that you're a customer with money in your pocket. You ever been, you ever been there? You ever had that happen? 
They're like, this guy doesn't own the place. He's a hireling. She's a hireling. You know, the, the, Paul says, I wasn't a hireling. I wasn't bought and paid for. I wasn't working cheap for the, for the, in, for the organization. I was a serious pastor. I'm a, a serious elder. You know, these hands minister to my necessities. He doesn't say it here, but elsewhere we know he, was a tent, he had a tent-making business. And to those who were with me. So Paul says, you know, when I was with you, I earned my own money. And it was legitimate for him to take a salary from the church. This, he says this in other places in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians, in 1 Timothy, it's very clear. Those who preach the gospel can live of the gospel. It's a legitimate thing. But if you want to preach as, as a volunteer, you may. Or if you want to preach as a, a, what we call bivocational, you may. I come from a long line of bivocational pastors. I personally have been bivocational, and I am humbled today. All week I've been really humbled just to think about how generous people have been with me that I can live of the gospel. I'm super grateful for that. It humbles me a lot today even. Paul said among the people, I didn't take a salary. And not only that, but my people that I brought with me, they weren't a burden on you because I took care of them too. And a little bit later on, he's going to say, and you know, there were weak people and we helped them too. What he's saying, he's not bragging. He's just saying, this is evidence that I was, that what I'm saying is real. I did it at my own expense. I have had occasions, and they haven't been lately, but many years where what I made in the church would provide for my family, even though I had good people. And, and, and so they gave me the freedom to go out and do other things. And I would go out, and I've done a whole bunch of other things. When I was younger, I did a bunch of other things. It was almost like my gift to the Lord that I was supporting myself a little bit. Now, if you get a full-time thing, as, I don't want to focus this on me, but then you should be generous. When you've been touched by God, you're, you're just generous. I know that's true. And, and Paul said, I, was, I believed in what I was doing. I did it at my own expense. You yourselves know, verse 34, these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. And then he says this, and this is pretty sweet. And all gospel preachers go here. In all things I have shown that by working hard in this way, you can help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Paul uses the name of the Lord Jesus every chance he gets. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Words in red, aren't they? It's nowhere recorded in the gospels, but everybody there knew Jesus said, it's happier to give than it is to receive. Wow. So there you have it. It's including a reminder of sacrifice and works. And he points to Jesus. And then there's the tender parting scene, verses 36 through 38. When he said these things, he knelt down and prayed. He's kneeling down. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word which he had spoken, they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Now, I want to show you here as a special application to each of you. What we have here in this passage is a, a man who was a powerful influence for good for, a long, for even to this day, a lasting influence, a powerful influence how can we influence the people that we love like that? I mean, I noticed things. I want to show you these four things, four ways to influence people. And this would be good for all of us, elders and all of us. 
how to influence people spiritually, which is even more important than influencing them financially or politically. How to influence people powerfully. How to influence people lastingly. How to influence people for good. Tim Keller wrote about Paul. He said, I think it would be hard to disagree with the view that Paul is one of the six or seven most influential leaders in the history of the human race. One of the most influential people in history was Paul. And when we listen to what he said, we can kind of cherry pick some things from his life that will help us to be an influence on the Gunnisons in our life or on the kids in our Sunday school or in our classroom at school or in our neighborhood. We had some guys that they love the Lord, a bunch of guys. They were Greek heritage guys. And they lived in a Greek heritage neighborhood in the Detroit area. And they were rough, and they were rowdy, and they were troublemakers, man. They would go out in the street, and they would play hockey. And when they got tired of playing hockey in the street, they would just go wreak havoc and just steal, just mess around, do bad things. They grew up and did even worse bad things. And then one of them met the Lord. And then he entered the rest of them, the Lord. And these guys were hardcore. They all got saved in a bunch, and they all are, are living for the Lord today. And, and so here's where, here's where the plot gets interesting. So one day, I'm dealing with a family, with an elderly lady who's ill, and she starts to tell me a story about where she lived. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. That's the same neighborhood as those guys. And then she got to tell them about how she would see these boys out on the street playing hockey and she would just pray for them and then I told her their names and she goes this this is the same bunch I'm like well before you die I'd like you to know that whole bunch of kids got saved yeah something she had influence from her front porch because the spirit moved her to pray and she prayed and those guys they go around preaching at stuff. They're actually a little obnoxious about it. They, they go around preaching at like the, the, the Indy 500. They could use a little more finesse. But anyway, they, they're, they're, they're Christians and they go around preaching publicly. If you ever went to Ann Arbor on game day, those boys would not be watching the game. They'd be calling out sinners <laughs> off the street. But the point is, God answered a prayer. So these are four things. How, do you, how can you be an influence? Here's, here's one thing I saw in Paul. Be an example to them. Influence people by being an example. This is what Paul says on the whole first part of that is, you know, you saw my life. You watched what I did. I lived among you humbly or sincerely, openly. He was a transparent example. Never underestimate the power of just being a transparent example. If you're a kid, you're going back to school and you're with a lot of other kids and you're thinking, I'm not allowed to say a lot of stuff. I'm going to get in trouble if I... But you can be a powerful example how beautiful is it when a young woman is an example of faith and virtue and character and of Christ? Powerful example. Everybody notices. Everybody sees it. This is what our world needs. You want to be an outstanding young person today? Follow Jesus. That's all you got to do. Follow Jesus. He'll help you. You will be outstanding. People will notice. They'll ask you questions. What's going on? Uh, be an example. 
Mom, I know you feel like you, you wish you could make things happen. I, I often think, could I just, I wish I could open the little door of their heart and put something in there that needs to be in there, but I can't. But you can be, you can show them what it looks like. You can be an example. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, the first thing he says, and he spends a long time saying it, is, I lived among you. You saw my life. I was an example. You can't give what you don't have. And the most powerful way to impact other people is to show them. Telling them is important, but it is secondary. It's vital, but it's secondary. Primary is show them. Don't expect them to do what you say if they don't see you living a clear example of it. I want to warn you right now. Some of you, you say you believe this, 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 and this. But if you say that you believe that, 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 and that, the kids really aren't taking that to the bank. Here's what they're taking to the bank, what they're watching you do. They will literally almost set aside what you say, and then they will do what you do, more likely. And I hope that's not a disappointment to you someday. I think sometimes, you know, if you, if you think about how important it is for the things that you want someday for your children and your grandchildren to walk in, and, and, and if you're a bit discouraged right now even, and you think about that, and it's not going the way you wish, don't underestimate the power of the continual example of faithfulness. Just continue to be faithful. You can say, until I die, there's one lady who gets up in the morning and opens up her Bible and makes tea and reads her Bible and talks to God. And those kids are going to know that this lady gets up every morning and she talks to God. They're going to know that she trusts the Lord. Just, even where, where they go in the world, what they do, or what they say they believe or don't believe, there's a dad who's not going to cave into the world, but he's going to live for God, because if he's the only one, because he's an example. This is a very powerful. My son, Kyle, Dan and Wes came from Texas. They're over, they went over to be with the others in West Michigan today. They're around Friday and Saturday, and we'll go see them today. But, so Dan and Wes, our younger sons, were in town, so our older sons, Kyle and Chuck and her families came over yesterday. It was kind of cool. Kyle, uh, when he was a boy, I taught him to change oil. Dewey, can you imagine that? Me teaching him to change oil. Dewey, actually, we shouldn't really say this publicly, should we? Because Dewey might not be willing to help you like he does me. But I have a really nice tractor I don't want to mess up. So I, Dewey comes over to make sure I don't mess up my tractor. But I was... <laughs> And I just watch him do it. And I kind of keep up the banter. That's how it works. I just, I kind of entertain him and then he does the work. That's exactly what it looks like. Anyway, thank you, Dewey, for that. Sorry, the public thing. Anyway, not really sorry, but I, I wanted to teach Kyle to change oil. <laughs> and so that was important. And my dad taught me. And so I got, I, I didn't go and sit down recliner and go, here's the way you do it. You know, you get, you get four quarts of oil and you get a pan and you loosen a plug and then you take off the, filter and then you don't cross it you put it back on you drain the thing you wait till it's not hot you know don't drain the oil when it's hot drain, drain it when it's cool you know I didn't sit in a recliner and send him to change the oil I'm dumb but I'm not that dumb I went out there with him and I said to him okay watch me watch what I'm doing right now and let me explain why I'm doing what I'm doing and I would do it and I would explain it to him. Then I would ask him, I mean, you that are teachers, you know, you do this all day, every day. You say, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? What am I going to do next? And you, you walk him through. And then what do you do? You go, here, you try it. And then you watch them. And then after a while, they come over to your house on a holiday. And then you go, I bought a light package for my car, but I'm not sure how to put it in. And then you just stand back and watch it happen. That's what happens. 
like yesterday at my house. I'm like, oh, that's how that works. <laughs> anyway, now you think very little of me, and that's probably appropriate. But I have new lights in my car. I got LED lights in all my car because my kid came over yesterday. But you know how that started? I didn't tell him how to do things. I showed him. Now he showed me how to do things. Kind of cool. We got people here that serve. We got a guy here that serves quietly behind the scenes. I won't say too much. But when I met him, I thought, I bet he would serve because I've seen his parents serve for years. His parents served and served and served for years. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Every time I get to the church, his dad is already there working on the buses. And every time I get to church, his mom is already there working as a church secretary, carrying a heavy load of all the things that need to be done when you're in a really good ministry-oriented church secretary. And when I realized he was in this church, I thought, I wonder if he's got that servant gene. Oh, yeah, he does. I said, hey, would you do that? Oh, yeah, he, he quietly just serves. This is beautiful, isn't it? Be an example. This is a powerful thing. Don't be discouraged. Be an example. The second thing is genuinely care. If you want to really influence people, be an example. Genuinely care. Notice these. A pastor is a bishop, is an elder. It's, it, it has all that caring built into it. A shepherd leads, feeds. He protects from danger. And this is what we should do, all of us. With those that we want to influence, we should genuinely care. Leadership really comes from genuinely caring. If people don't think you genuinely care for them, then you're kind of done leading them unless you can restore that. And sometimes this requires tenderness and patience, a lot of tenderness and a lot of patience. But sometimes it requires toughness and conviction and willingness to not skirt certain issues and a directness. You see this in this text. How do you influence people? By being an example. How do you influence people? By genuinely caring for them, like Paul did here. How do you influence people? Number three, by trying to give more than you receive. By trying to give more than you receive. I phrased that real carefully today because God is listening to what I say. And I know that. And he knows me. And I often wonder if others have given to me more than I have given to them. And that's why I say try. Because I want to be honest and walk in sincerity and humility. I love this story. I followed the Chicago Bears, sorry. When I was in college, I didn't know I was going to live in this area. I followed the Chicago Bears back in the 70s when Walter Payton played for the Chicago Bears. He was an amazing guy to watch. Sweetness, they called him. Fun to watch. Kind of like Barry Sanders, only for the Chicago Bears, just in case you're wondering. Yeah. Man, he was, he was amazing. Uh, Mike Ditka was his coach, and they were interviewing Mike Ditka one day, and Mike Ditka said, Walter Payton is the greatest football player I have ever coached. He said, Walter Payton is, and you know, remember Ditka? He's like, it looked like he like chewed on nails all the time. Wal, Walter Payton is the greatest football player I have ever coached, he said. And my definition of greatness is he gave more to this team than he took from it. And when I heard him say that, it's, I was like, wow, I have been the recipient of much generosity from people, but personally, from my family, from my wife, 
from the church. I don't know if you're like I am. Probably you are. You've been given much. So Paul said, I wasn't here to take from you. I was here to give to you. Jesus said, I wasn't here to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Jesus said that, the one we're following. And there's great, there's great joy in that. I, I worked my way through college. My parents helped me by giving me a car and by giving me a gas card where I could go to work. <laughs> $5 a week, they said. Dad, that was back in the day. My dad said, you can put $5 a week in the VW, go to work. And that was, that was great. That was quite a bit. I couldn't have bought my own car or pay for that gas. And so he helped me that way and every other way he could. If things went bad, he'd send me money, help me. But, but I didn't have, we didn't have the ability where, where my parents could just send me through college. And I probably would have done that if they could have. And I know that God had another plan. But there was a lady in my church. And I was, lived in Cedarville. I applied to Cedarville. I was accepted. And then when I realized how much it was going to cost, I thought, I can't go to Cedarville. It's, it's for rich people. And uh, so, so I'm like, wow. I took a church and went to work and, and eventually knocked down, put piece together my training. But, but I was at a church, and I bumped into a lady, and she said, my daughter graduated from Cedarville. I was like, oh, wow. That's nice. And I go, that was a little out of my price range. And she goes, me too, us too. I go, how'd she do that? Debt probably, right? I kind of laughed, debt. No, no, she didn't. She said she didn't have a dime of debt. She graduated without debt. I looked at her like, like, what's your secret to that? Her name was Debbie. Debbie says, well, I'm a nurse, and we lived on my husband's income, and we made do on that. And I put away everything I made, and I paid the bill. And then, <laughs> while you say that, I noticed tears went, <laughs> based on this side, down her face on that side. She's so proud of that girl, Jenny. She's so proud of her. She paid her way through college by working extra shifts, working overtime, and never spending any of that money, but giving it all to Cedarville University so her daughter could walk across that stage, even though she was from common people, she could walk across that stage debt-free at a fine Christian university. And the tears on her face said something to me. They said, oh, it's more blessed to give than receive. When you love somebody, you might want to tell you one more. My grandfather, my great-grandfather lost a farm he lost a farm up in Chatham, and every time we drive by it, everybody in our family goes, yeah, that used to be our place, and then it was lost in the Great Depression. Everybody says that. It's like part of our story is they say it over and over again. I'm like, I know, I know. I heard this. You drive by that place, just wait for somebody to say it. That was our place up on the top of the hill. We lost it in the Depression, and they had to move down to the Greens, and they had to work their place, and they had to live there. So my grandfather's goal in life was to get back to the country and buy a little farm. That's the main thing he wanted to do get back to the farm and buy a farm. And he worked in a factory, and he, was a, he got saved later, and he was a pastor and a factory laborer, and he worked really hard. And after the kids were grown, he finally had enough that he could buy a very humble farm north of town, up in the hills. And he loved that place, and he got moved onto that farm. And then my Uncle Bill, his kids were coming along, and they were little, and they were coming home from school, and they went to Newark, and things were kind of difficult for them. And they went to school there in Newark, and Grandpa says to them, well, it would probably be better for the kids to be raised on the farm, wouldn't it, than to be in town? And my grandpa moved back in town. And my Uncle Bill and his girls moved out to the farm. And he lived in an apartment in a duplex on kind of the 
business end of Newark, Ohio, by the railroad tracks for years. And at nighttime, he'd get his lunch bucket, pick up grandma. They'd drive out to the farm and work the farm. And at night, tired, they'd come back. And you know why they did that. Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. People who follow Jesus know that. Paul said that. How do you influence people? You try to give them more than you take from them. You, you give. You, you, you sacrifice. And then the final thing is, this is huge, and I'm eager to tell you this. When you've done all the things that you do, including the things I didn't list here, you entrust them to God, to the word of his grace, to the church of the living God, to the faithful elders, to the Sunday school teachers. You trust that God's ways are right. Trust them to God. Entrust them to God. This is what, this is what Paul did. Look, at, look where he says it. It's such a rich place. Of course, you know it's verse 32. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. God's word and his ways are powerful. Even when we're not there, God's ways are powerful. Even when we're a long way away, God's word is powerful. The word of his grace, the, the gospel of grace is very powerful. And, and this is, how do we influence people? Well, we influence people in many ways, but by being an example, by genuinely caring by giving more than we receive and by entrusting them to God. And, and, you know, it isn't all up to you. It isn't all up to you. God is at work in this. My, I, I got a picture from my boy years ago. It was a picture of my grandson, Kyle, and they had taken him to the county fair and they had put him on an airplane. You know, the kind of airplane that's on, the, on an arm of a thing that goes around like this. You know what I mean? And it goes, it had a little stick. If you pull it up, the airplane goes up. And if you push it forward, the airplane goes down. And it has instrument panel with lights and dials and everything. They don't mean anything, but you've got this instrument panel. And I imagine little Kyle, he's a serious kid, getting on that plane and going, well, flying an airplane now. Got the joystick right here. And, he's, and, there, and he goes by grandma and grandpa. They're laughing and waving. He ain't laughing. He's flying an airplane. He's looking at the dials. He's making the adjustments. He's serious. It's up and down as if his life, he looks like Charles Lindbergh ready to conquer the Atlantic. He looks like an a, a RAF flyer fighting off the German hordes over London. He's serious. He gets done, grandma, mom and dad are laughing and taking pictures and waving, and grandma and grandpa are laughing and taking pictures and waving, and he steps out on the, on the wing of the airplane, serious, as if his, the whole flight depended on him, but it, but it didn't. How many times have you been that kid? I've been that kid over and over again, hanging on to this thing like everything depends on me, when the truth of the matter is it doesn't depend on you. We do our part, God empowers it. And God's ways are, are, are wonderful and powerful, and we can trust him. And Paul walked away from the Ephesian church, and he went to Jerusalem. And then a series of trials and house arrest and beatings and shipwrecks and 
Others came. Timothy came along, pastored. He writes a letter, a couple letters to Timothy while Timothy is pastoring the Ephesian church. Later on, there's a letter that's written by John to the Ephesian church. And he says, you have resisted false teaching. He commends them for that. You resisted false teaching. He does say, you did leave your first love and you need to go back. And church historians and church fathers wrote after that, that Ephesus did listen to that exhortation from John and return to their first love. The, the church in Ephesus not only resisted false teaching, but recovered its first love. But Paul wasn't there for any of that because he had commended them to God and to the word of his grace. And whatever you came burdened with today, I trust that you will trust the Lord and don't live like it all depends on you. Steve Wallenwein, we picked on him.